Hey everyone, this is Roblox Rock. I'm an artist and activist based in Los Angeles. I'm 26 years old and I grew up across the American continent and over the Atlantic Ocean in London, England. I was raised by a Mexican-American mother and a French-British father. Since 2016, I've been working with Lauren Bond in the Metabolic Studio. My focus has been documenting and archiving our current political and environmental crisis, focusing on water wars in the Americas, indigenous resistance, and the movement to protect our planet in the face of extinction and crumbling infrastructure. Here at the Metabolic Studio, we believe in the power of stories as part of our commons. Today, we will be listening to Zakaria, who was introduced to our Thursday community evenings by Awudu, who also joins us here. Zakaria will be sharing his experience as he grew from a university student to an engaged divestment activist to a frontline water protector standing in the path of pipeline construction in Virginia. Let's listen to his story. I'm visiting town, yeah, so I come out from the East Coast uh, in so-called Virginia. Uh, I'm out here visiting my brother, Aoudou, and and also... uh, working with Greenpeace to help them out with the training. There's a camp that Greenpeace puts on every year to to direct action camp. Mm-hmm. So it teaches, brings a lot of people from grassroots struggles mm-hmm. um, and they break it up into tracks, blockades, arts and creative resistance, and then uh, climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a week long intense like it's it's the coolest summer camp that you you always dream of like amazing. just dope people <laughs> great food and and really really powerful skill building together mm-hmm. so I'll be I'll be out there when is it? it's in April okay yeah Greenpeace Action Camp sick yeah I've heard about a lot of these camps uh, happening where people learn the skills necessary to be good at what they do when the time comes you know and that's necessary you know to be able to Let's to be able here. to be trained in doing things in the right way, so you don't have to learn when the time comes, especially if you're planning on standing up against big corporations and in the way yeah, of stuff. Straight up, it's good to be trained so people can keep their cool. Know what they do. I mean, it really. When I so I went to Action Camp. Well, we're doing our living together at the time. Uh, you remember that, one? Florida? Yeah, in Florida, right? And I went out and uh, and I, I I don't know I just like did it it wasn't like uh, because I'm trying to get into something mm-hmm. or this or that but it's amazing just the putting the tools in my hand putting the skills in my hand I don't even mess with Greenpeace you know like yeah. I'm not I don't mess with like that organization yeah, yeah, yeah. really like yeah. but their actions team and the actions the things that that the mm-hmm. action like sector is doing and trying to like give people these skills and spread that knowledge for me it really was pivotal like, mm-hmm. they totally changed my activism it totally changed my life yeah to to suddenly direct action wasn't this like idea mm-hmm. uh that i could that i could like spitball about mm-hmm. but became something that i not only believed in but was able to activate yeah so how did you come how did you come to being involved with this stuff I mean you just mentioned that camp but 
what what led you on the path to getting involved in this stuff? <laughs> I know it's a long story. I know, and I'm, I'm like, I gotta figure out my story because I'm asked this all the time, and I, and I always have to start from scratch. But um, <laughs> one way to tell it is like I I was uh, I was in college and and um, learned about this this campaign called divestment, which was something that I thought was like what. Like, like when I heard about it, I was like, that's what, I don't know, some economic students mm-hmm. will work on that. Game. <laughs> you know, we're going to, like, talk about university portfolios and mm-hmm. investments. And I just didn't feel that. I was just like, this is not my game. And then I remember that summer I was listening to the radio, actually. Um, and I heard a story about students at a campus in Pennsylvania. And, and they were, like, doing divestment work. And, and and the audio comes in from the campus and the students chanting and like I don't know what I want as far as demands or anything like that but I know what I want mm-hmm. is that energy and to yeah. create that kind of activity and 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 um, power mm-hmm. so really for me it was like I don't even think it mattered so much what the directive of the campaign was mm-hmm. what I knew I wanted to do was to be a part of something on campus that was more than just going to our classes and to to the dining hall and partying on the weekends mm-hmm but actually engaging um, in building uh, movement and mm-hmm. power for students on campus. So that's what we did. We threw down so hard for the next two years. And we just said, like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get divestment done. And, and every time there was a no, we're just like, okay, what's next? And that slowly led us outside of the, like, legal or, uh, you know, the, the school uh, uh, established pathways to change stuff mm-hmm. and eventually those were exhausted and the pivotal moment came right like where it's like are we done or do we keep going and we said we keep going and and, and that culminated in this like 25 day sitting in our president's office and and also divestment from what? fossil fuels right mm-hmm. yeah divestment from fossil fuels um, so getting the, the school's endowment to divest that yeah, yeah the school to, to withdraw all of its investments from the fossil fuel industry, and um, yeah, and I mean that that's one way to like describe the moment that I really it became more than just like something I was aware about mm-hmm. and something that I was crafting my personality around, and it became really real. Um, and suddenly, my administrators it was a small school, so it was kind of this like family vibe, like well administrators that you know had that kind of culture to them or whatever mm-hmm. were suddenly treating me like an enemy and like like trying to mm-hmm. undermine us act undermine their own students actively to the point that they 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 really in a, in a sinister way got the police to come through and, and catch us off guard and a bunch of students got arrested and mm-hmm. yeah so i think that was this point of breaking from what was my my trajectory my whole mm-hmm. life you know like, get good grades in school like go to a college get good grades there mm-hmm. do something righteous for sure but in a career yeah, you know yeah, what I mean and, and suddenly I I really broke that um, or it got broken I don't know if I broke it but it got broken mm-hmm. and ever since then I've been putting back I've been creating the path for myself mm-hmm. um, yeah. and so how, where did that lead once you had I mean, did that culminate in a decision by the by the institution that you were 
that you were, you know, protesting against? Yeah, they divested. They divested. They divested. So that was successful. Yeah. And yeah. so, how did that make you feel after that happened? I think ultimately it was like, okay, like we can do this. Now, now what? You yeah. know what I mean? Like the climate crisis has not been solved, you know, because we divested. So it's like, what now? What now? But yeah. it encouraged you, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big thing that maybe a lot of people don't experience maybe as early in the game when they're getting involved in stuff is is, is successes at a, at a level that you were trying to reach, you know? And that, I'm sure, propelled you to think, well, how do I take this further? How do I take this deeper? Definitely. When when you've had those thoughts, where, where did it then take you? Well, where I've been now and where, where, where I remain is has been living on the front lines of the struggle against the Mountain Valley Pipeline, mm-hmm. um, which is a 42-inch fracked gas pipeline that picks up from West Virginia, extraction sites in West Virginia, and crosses through the Appalachian Mountain Range in Virginia. It's been a multi-year struggle at this point, two years. Mm-hmm. Actually, this month was when the first tree sits came up. I don't think there's been a single day of construction that there also hasn't been active resistance. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been any period in which there's activity on, on their front without developments on, on ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's just been gritty. Like the whole way through has been, been, been really, really pushing up against each other, the company and the people. And it's cost them, mm-hmm. you know, it's cost them upwards of $6 billion and a year and a half of unanticipated construction time they've been delayed and it's not done yet so that's been a big part of my life is is that fight is that struggle mm-hmm. is just building ways to to throw sand in the gears you know to clog them up as yep. much as we can yep. and then also I mean these are not two different stories mm. but same path mm-hmm. different forms but, but also into not just fighting on behalf of the land, but then also coming into relationship with the land, mm-hmm. with the soil, with the plant plant beings and other beings. Um, that part has been totally unpredictable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I, I've dreamed of this farming and growing food since I was young. Like, I really, really had an aversion to it it didn't feel like political work it mm. didn't feel like movement work it felt like something like at the best that like a, a hippies yeah. go out yeah, to the land right. and, yeah. and now I'm, I'm finding myself in, in really finding the seamless interwovenness of of this building with land building collaborative bonds through cultivating our relationship our right relationship, our reciprocal relationship, our, our regenerative relationship with the land that I spent so many years fighting about with my words, mm-hmm. my rhetoric, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean, talking about climate change, talking about extraction, um, talking about the destruction, and now being in a position where I'm in relationship with those places and, and those, the earth, you know. Mm-hmm. Where did that shift happen, you know, during during the time that you were there on the front line, at which point did you start to realize that you would have to live there? You know, beyond camping or beyond being in a camp or being in a position where you were in a state of resistance to a state of living, you know, where you're living in the in the way of this pipeline instead of necessarily yeah. being there in a kind of temporary way. 
mm-hmm. like growing food and mm-hmm. we had to leave a place that we had been holding it down for a while it got it got really hot there was a lot of police um, feds to federal police because federal issue ultimately um, since the pipeline crosses multiple states we essentially had a retreat you know there was it wasn't viable to remain there so we left that land we left that place and so did the family that was living there um, because they they really couldn't endure both their business operationally but also emotionally mm-hmm. the four kids you know they couldn't really they couldn't be there anymore so for a while it was like the ultimate loss like mm-hmm. this is the thing you talk about in the interviews to get people to care like his family's literally their 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 lives being turned upside down and ultimately having to leave land mm-hmm. you know and having to stop farming they were doing just small scale farming and it happened and it was just now this place that was torn up and abandoned and the opportunity came from within that that really sad position that we ended up in you know was now there was opportunity for us to to move to move there mm-hmm. in a different form the trees were down at this point the land was torn up at this point and in my mind that's where the story ended you know what I mean like mm-hmm. we lost right that's where the story ends but you know as the tadpoles that were swimming in the yeah. in literally in the puddles of the tracks of the construction equipment would show like that's not there's no end mm-hmm. you know there's always this ability for to regenerate to heal mm-hmm. and that's that's what it became about you know we we were we were working with soil and and and, and you know, picking tomatoes and and looking over our shoulder and seeing this pipeline, you know, and some days it would be like we'd be uh, weeding a bed and then suddenly the construction workers were out there and we'd be like rushing down there and, and monitoring them and, 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 and trying to do our best to deter them. I don't remember what your question was. No, 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 you answered it. I mean, that was, that was very much what I was, you know, interested in is at which point did it change from being in a position where you felt like a loss was something that felt final and like you know you were in a position where it was this situation or nothing and it was a resistance situation to becoming something that you were able to live through and you were able to suddenly see that this is this is a real way of life but you're actually directly confronting the reality of capitalism by looking at the construction and the destruction that's happening of, of a pipeline totally. and then whilst growing and living off the land you're able to directly experience the end effects of resource extraction well the, the primary effects not even the end effects the, the primary effects of the construction of, a, of infrastructure that would then go through and, and create indefinite more damage um, totally. later on I really think that it's our alienation and our separation from the land that has been a very violent process of colonization that has allowed it to get this bad you know it's also it's the force of of obviously like violently extracting and exploiting the resources and the ecosystems but also what changed for me is like 
I no longer was fighting these pipelines because I'm abstractly relating to a certain amount of parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere and the two degrees of Celsius rise, you know, these like, these very, like, very in their nature abstract Mm -hmm. um, points of orientation for me to be like throwing my weight in a direction on behalf of um, suddenly like for the first time it became like this sounds so ridiculous but it's just it's a testimony to how alienated we become and I be and I am and I have been is that like I've like re- had to remember that that I that I eat because the soil can feed me mm-hmm. like like and I can't I can't live with you know like I cannot live if the soil is not healthy mm-hmm. I cannot live without ecosystems that are intact like like we're we're so we're so connected to this thing that is it's, it's not a thing this we're so connected to it all right mm-hmm. and if we're if we were drinking from the stream that the pipeline was crossing and, and eating from the land that the pipeline is going to tear up like that's a very different inclination that's a very different motivation mm-hmm. to fight mm-hmm. you know what i mean absolutely and i think that's where it's starting to get is because it's gone so far mm-hmm. that now like oblivion of like the earth and its ability to regenerate mm. life um, is at stake. We need to do something. Yeah. But I think it really requires us to re re engage with our relationship to the land that way mm-hmm. to to know what we're fighting for. Yeah. You know. In trying to get deeper with how to be of more service to the land is to actually get to know it more. And yeah. especially trying to get to know it in places where it's in peril. Yeah, for sure. Thinking about land, you know, I'm, I'm curious because I don't know in, spe- in the specific territory you are. What indigenous people is the territory that is the land you're in? The Powhatan people. Powhatan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how is the... How also is the Catawba people, mm-hmm. depending on where you are in the, that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's the relationship... Um, like to this particular struggle and how has that developed over the time that you've been there and that you've been able to observe what's going on you know with the indigenous people local indigenous communities it's so it's weird like i'm in virginia and it's that's the like original colonial state and Mm -hmm. it's i don't think there are any reservations Mm -hmm. in virginia there are some in north carolina and there are few like organized communal forms where indigenous people are still living there mm-hmm. that I know of yeah, my, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean absolutely and uh, you know this comes from a position of ignorance myself you know yeah. I don't know about that land and I don't know about what's going on there so it's more of a question to educate myself and others that may be listening you know yeah I mean, that's been a hard for me especially like it's been a hard dynamic of the fight is that there have been few linkages to especially for the Mountain Valley Pipeline to, mm. like, communities of color, to indigenous people. And that is curious to me because there have been indigenous individuals mm-hmm. that are active. But like I said, like, there's... The process of colonization is so deep and mm-hmm. long-lasting in Virginia that that indigenous people have been, like, individuated in that way. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Which makes us all weaker. Mm-hmm. But also just because of the geography of this pipeline going through Appalachia, the areas that it is, Southwest Virginia, it's been a struggle that's primarily been taken up by white people. Mm-hmm. And 
yeah, it's been it's been a little bit hard to find my place mm-hmm. in that, you know, and to to be in community with people was like this. This is definitely about the pipeline. I'm, yeah. I'm about it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But like, it's also a lot more going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that this struggle is needs to be reaching deeper and extending further um, than than winning or losing on this issue. Mm-hmm. Appalachia has been like an extract an extraction state within this nation state. Like mm-hmm. it's been treated that way. Like especially you go out to West Virginia and generation over generation like they mined the hills once that wasn't viable anymore once they took too much then they blew the mountaintops off and started mining from there and then once once they got what they needed from the mountaintops now they're fracking you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. it's just that place has been so attacked and that's been a crisis that white the white people of Appalachia have like genuinely around mountaintop removal sites like people don't be living past 50 like people people be dying so directly in consequence Mm -hmm. to to how like surprise blowing the top of the mountain off and and the the destruction of the watershed the Mm -hmm. destruction of the the carcinogens that have just totally polluted people's sources of of um food and water Mm -hmm. like it's really intense. Yeah. It's really, really intense. And the, the struggle, the workers' struggle that's got, that's happened around these issues mm-hmm. um, is deep. You yeah. know, it's really deep. Oh, yeah. it's, it's good to hear it. You know, that's the thing is that, like, I think radical unity coming across various liberation movements, whether or not it was the Black Panther Party, it was Chicanos or, or liberated Latinos, yeah. whether or not it's Puerto Ricans, the Young Lords were there. You know, there's these things coming together and you know the the young patriots that's that's a sign of what america could be you know mm-hmm. like what what movements could could happen you know when we're, where solidarity could be built i'd hope that in and amongst these camps and in and amongst these movements where you are that there's signs of that or that there's a feeling that you can at least say you've met a lot of people that have inherited some of the roots of those resistance traditions and obviously you're continuing to do it mm-hmm. now you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah for sure I think what what stands out to me is you know the young patriots forming around being in their own way like a displaced white population mm-hmm. in the urban areas of Chicago of New York because the jobs in the rural areas where their families came from, from where their parents came from, like totally depleted, has something to do with World War II. My history is not, yeah, same, so not all mine. the way up, but 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 my understanding is like this was also a displaced, you know, in a way, a mm-hmm. displaced white population in the urban areas that are now, by coercion, put into forcibly put into the same kind of like neighborhoods mm-hmm. that block over. There's the Chicano people and black people, and it's that it's the basis. Of, that comes from that shared experience, mm-hmm. the basis that comes from a shared struggle against the police, you know? I like watching YouTube videos of, of um, I can't remember his name, but some, some dude from the Black Panthers leading this meeting in front of all these white people. Mm-hmm. And, and the way he's talking to them, it's like, it, it will blow your mind. Like, mm-hmm. just, he's, he's acting, it's like, it's like what, what are the things that bother you? Like, what are the things? And, and people are talking about their cousin getting beat up by the police um, uh, 
talking about working their ass off and not being able to afford what they need and it's and it's this thing where it's like this black man is from the Black Panther Party is talking to these people that like have like a southern accent mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know and you see the kind of like the fear and the the bias and the racism in that crowd literally crumble mm-hmm. because of a recognition that we share a struggle yeah. and that my freedom is bound up in yours like it happens in the course of like a 30 minute session where he's able to demonstrate that and I think that's what is needed mm-hmm. um is 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 to to buy to 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 find our bonds in that shared experience in that shared struggle um and like i was saying to you earlier like i think climate change creates this overlapping all-encompassing dynamic Mm -hmm. and effect that that we can relate to each other through as a a species as a a collective organism Mm -hmm. it's something i was even thinking about today um, was just like how how the forces of gentrification and and just like living becoming un- unaffordable mm. and rent becoming so high is really forcing people into collecting collective living situations mm-hmm. to afford it yeah. you know what I'm saying like don't let the landlord find out but like there's mad people living in that place because otherwise none of y'all can afford it yep. it's like capital has coerced us and forced us into these very individualized separated existences atomized existences but then it like can't help itself from now then in the same flow creating the dynamics where we need each other and and it's it needs to be less it it can't just be as superficial as like i need you so that we can afford rent (laughs) you know what i mean but like i think the fact that it's creating dynamics where we're coming into collective uh, existences with each other, shared mm-hmm. existences with each other, and like, there's something deep in us that yeah. that is ignited by that, mm-hmm. and, and there's there's so much creative potential in in developing a life in common with each other. Mm-hmm. It's both producing the the conditions of our weakness and mm-hmm. separation, but also what are the ways that is accidentally creating the conditions of our solidarity yeah. and our friendship. Mm-hmm if you had a kind of hopeful view of what's going to happen or a kind of intuition so, yeah, as yeah. to what's happening, you know, how would you be able to put that in some words without you having to, you know, spell out a kind of cheesy version of the future? But, like, I can actually see things happening that I think are really encouraging and if different bits fall into place together, I think we could see a different... Yeah way of things operating I'm, I'm wondering if you have that experience and mm. there's like a some like ancient saying like may you live in interesting times mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it might be low key like a a curse <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I don't I don't know I, I don't see it as such like I'm I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I'm happy to be alive in this world, despite how interesting it is becoming. And what I think is is a condition of our time that has a lot of possibility contained in it is that the illusions that so much of this project have been built off of of like endless expansion and some kind of like transgression that humans will you know, be 
the masters of this world and some some higher form above the other beings and organisms the the fantasy of of the commodity all of that is being revealed to be a shadow of life mm. a shadow of what is real and true and it's become so unreal so evidently unreal that I feel I'm sure of, of, of the signs that it's shattering mm-hmm. I mean the fact that I can have this conversation with you mm-hmm. just linking up in a city that I'm not even from just like and that we're, we're on the same tip in you know? the last hour yeah straight up like we literally met an hour ago yeah and we, you know this this is like this is actually mm-hmm. the answer yeah. is that it creates the grounds for for this kind of friendship to form mm-hmm. between perfect strangers yeah. because we share I call friendship the, the creation of a, of a world in common with mm-hmm. each other of a common world yeah and I call solidarity the contagious dimension of friendship. Mm-hmm. And I think that the conditions for us to look at the world together and to see the old, totally like ridiculous, destructive ways that humans have have tried to go about life and to say that's not what we want. That's not what we desire. We desire we don't desire this anymore. It doesn't primarily come from a hatred for the police. It doesn't primarily, it won't primarily come from a hatred for colonization. Like, mm-hmm. what it comes from is a desire, a desire that cannot be met mm-hmm. by the world as it currently is organized, mm-hmm. an excess of desire that spills out from it for, for, for a life in common with each other, in common with the land, in common with the water, in common with the beings that we share this world with, for a life that is formed from the basis of love mm-hmm. um, and this is where it sounds like a hallmark card no, I get it no, but that but shit is like that's 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 what, that's what I'm learning that's you know that's what I'm learning and we are so powerful we have this ability to to affect each other so deeply there's a promise in knowing that the world will look nothing like it does today and it's it's up to us to decide what it, what it becomes truly Thanks for listening to this week's story with Zakaria. Please check out our website metabolicstudio.org for a deeper dive into our projects and keep up to date with our engagements and gatherings on Instagram and Facebook. Join us next week for a conversation with Lydia Ponce, an indigenous movement builder in Los Angeles. We will be discussing how Lydia got engaged in activism and her lifelong struggle to reclaim her indigeneity. Wishing you all health, safety and even hope in the face of these times. For now, goodbye.